There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL Draft this year. My name is Ben Solak, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and Greg Horbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, which is, yeah, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, which includes which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are bad, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. That is the Ringer NFL Draft Show. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud Anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Tuesday, February 20th. Where were you on Saturday, January 13th, 2024? A monumental day in Hollywood history, we learned from Nielsen today. It was the most streamed day ever, with 40.8 billion minutes of content streamed over the internet in the U.S. That happened to be the day of the first NFL playoff game exclusively streamed that was on Peacock. And that was not a coincidence, of course. January is usually the biggest TV viewing month of the year, but the new Nielsen numbers showed that this January generated the highest monthly TV usage in four years, minus those first couple pandemic months. And sports really drove everything. In addition to the wildcard game, Peacock had a great month, actually. 1.6% of total viewing. Still small, but bigger than Max, catching up with Disney+. Plus. And with Seth MacFarlane's TED show and the Traders reality competition both charting on the list of top originals, it's a pretty good month for Peacock. That stat is particularly interesting to me because of some news from the Wall Street Journal last week that the heads of NBC Universal and Paramount have discussed the possibility of combining Peacock and Paramount Plus into one service. This wouldn't be a merger of the parent companies. It would be essentially a joint venture or a commercial relationship for streaming. Mount Cock, it's being called, not by me, certainly not by Craig or Lucas. They're much too classy for that. But if you take that 1.6% of viewership for Peacock and add in the 9% for Paramount Plus last month, that 2.5% would be almost as much viewership as Hulu or Prime Video. And they're the runners up in the streaming race in the US, the Netflix, which nearly triples them. That's just minutes streamed in the U.S., of course, not subscribers. But it's a big deal for Peacock and Paramount if it actually happens. And if you remember, those services have NFL games because NBC and CBS are the affiliated entities. And they were not included in this big sports joint venture among the other big media companies to launch a package of channels dedicated just to sports viewers. A lot going on there, not to mention that Paramount got some bad news last week when Warren Buffett, its biggest shareholder, dumped his stock. So we've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg in here to discuss it all. A big week in streaming and the future of Peacock and Paramount takes a new twist. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Great to be here. So today we are talking streaming, big week in streaming. We got some new numbers this past week on the January viewership and Peacock 
1.6% of viewership on all of streaming and television and all viewership. 1.6% of people watching Peacock. They had two shows chart on the originals chart, which is very rare for Peacock, Ted and the Traders. So is this the year of Peacock? Another data point. At least it's the month of Peacock. We'll give, <laughs> we'll say January was the month of Peacock. I don't know. They got, now they got Oppenheimer just dropped. So February might be pretty good as well. By the way, I'm pretty sure last year in January, February, we did an episode called, is this the year of Peacock? So no, no, no. I think we two. did, is Peacock back or is Peacock like not dead? They'd had a couple of good shows at the end of 22 and so then there was some some optimism. I think they had a best man show. They had poker face. They had a yeah. they had a little momentum. I mean, obviously the playoff game exclusively on Peacock was the big driver. I've heard from some NBCU sources that the churn numbers after the Peacock game are surprisingly good, meaning not as many people churned out after that game as they thought might. Having a TED show probably helped there and pushing them other sports and saying, oh, Oppenheimer's coming in February probably helped. So if they can keep those people subscribed, then that's a huge win. But then this news story dropped that I want to talk about where the journal reported that the leaders of Peacock and Paramount Plus, their parent companies, have at least discussed the, you know, very funny has discussed news story where we don't know what's happening. We just know they've discussed it. They've talked about putting these things together into one streaming service. What do you think about that? I think that that story landed on a Friday morning, less than 24 hours after Paramount's largest shareholder, Warren Buffett, <laughs> sold a third of his stake and the stock tanked. And yes. a couple of hours after we published a story about all of the problems at Paramount of last year. So while I think it is totally conceivable and light based on my reporting, true that there have been some some informal conversations between Paramount and Comcast about what to do in streaming, I the the sense I get is that the odds of that happening, the odds of an outright merger of Paramount Plus and Peacock are very low. And the timing of that story I found to be somewhat suspicious. Ooh, some Bloomberg on journal violence oh, no, right no. there. Not on journal, because <laughs> Jessica, who wrote the stories, is is a great reporter. You write that because someone tips you off to something, and sure. that tip, I think, came from people at Paramount who were a little stressed about things. So they're deflecting, but it's worth discussing because this would not be a merger of the companies, although I believe that still may be on the table at some point. This would be a commercial partnership, a joint venture, or some kind of a relationship that would combine these services into one offering, whether branded as one thing or branded as you know two for one, whatever it is. I get why you'd want to do that. I mean, think about that. If you could put the audience or the viewership time for both of these streamers into one, you would instantly be competitive with Hulu, Prime Video, at least from the viewership perspective. I mean, subscribers, different thing, but now all these services are in the ad business, so they're looking at increasing engagement time and time on platform. That would be pretty significant. You'd also reduce the marketing costs, potentially, for having one service. You could potentially reduce the content costs if you don't need as much content to fuel two services. Also, NBCU and Paramount already have a bundled product overseas, Sky Showtime. It's not big, but they do have it. And 
they are kind of complementary. I mean, Peacock skews more female, Paramount skews more older, more male. The downside, obviously, is when you get into business with Paramount these days, if you're Comcast, you don't know who's going to own that company in a year. Look, this is the debate we keep having about these different services, right? Okay, should Comcast merge or buy, should Comcast buy Warner Brothers Discovery or spin out NBC Universal and squish those two together? Should Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount merge? Should Comcast and Paramount figure out a deal? It's all because they're sitting on the three mass market services that have the least scale of the paid services, right? And are primarily US based. I mean, Paramount Plus is global, but they are pulling way back on international. And Max has some global business too, but all three of them need some help. And there are some obvious rationales to working together because if you have programming that is complementary, it can help. And there certainly are efficiencies that can be had if you did a proper merger and fired people. But let's take a a few levels of it. There's There's the version of it where Comcast buys Paramount. Now, everyone at Comcast says right now that at least they're not interested in it. I believe Brian Roberts has said that publicly. Even if they were interested, I don't think they think they could get it through the DOJ because you'd be combining two broadcast networks. Right. CBS and NBC. Or the FCC. Excuse me. There'd, there'd, there'd be all sorts of re- reviews of that. But if you could get away with it, would the pain of having to go through all the litigation and all the efficiencies and cutting and layoffs and all that be worth the benefit to the services? I'm not sure. If you were to just do some kind of JV or bundling, maybe. I mean, we're starting to see some experiments with bundling. I'd be curious what Max and Netflix have to say about their ad-supported Verizon bundle. Obviously, Disney likes its version of bundling. But those are different. I mean, Disney owns and operates the bundle that they offer. Just a commercial relationship where you're putting two services for one price. Like, sure, they could do that, but that's not very ambitious. That's just a deal. Yeah. And are you going to be able to discount to a degree where it's going to be that much more appealing to people? I do think there's a version. If you could sell the ad supported version of Max, Peacock, and Paramount Plus, like as a bundle for like 15 to 20 bucks, that's basically the same price as, say, Netflix or the Disney bundle. That does offer a lot, but it really only is interesting if you could like watch it all in one place. If you have, still have to toggle between three different apps, it's kind of a pain in the ass. It's interesting here that we're talking about the two services that are not included in this Spulu bundle, whatever you want to call it, the sports version of Hulu that Warner Discovery, Disney, and Fox are planning to launch. Because the knock on that service is that, yeah, it's a bundle or a new service just for sports fans, but it doesn't have the sports that are on CBS and NBC, which are now potentially discussing their own joint venture. So potentially we could have for the sports fan, two services, one, the joint venture Spulu service, the other being this Mountcock or whatever you want to call it service from NBC and CBS. All these people are just trying to trying to work together speaks to the relative weakness of their streaming services. It's kind what, of by the way, what would you what do you think the name should be? Mount Cock Plus came from a writer, Zach Bornstein, who tweeted it. I think it should just be Mount Cock. You don't need Mount, plus. no plus, no plus, no, just the Mount Cock. Are, I guess the pluses are insidious. Are insidious. Yeah. We don't need the the pluses. Well, plus if you call it Mount Cock, that is uh, that is catchy enough. Uh, maybe Peepar, Parapee. No, that's also. P-Mount? No, these are all bad things. I think Mount Cock is the clear winner if you're going to try to, to, to fuse the two names together. 
I think where we are going here is these companies trying to best leverage their sports offerings to set themselves up in whatever bundle they can get themselves into that would potentially prop up the rest of their offering. They're trying to, you know, come up with the modern equivalent of cable. That's not going to happen. You're never going to have people paying for 500 channels they don't watch. So they're trying to come up with the digital version of that and basing it around the sports offerings and coming up with some kind of a dual service, try service, whatever they can do to get people to pay more for this stuff. That is what they want to do. Between Comcast and Paramount, who do you think feels better about their streaming service right now? I think Comcast. First of all, Peacock has a greater share, at least in January. And Paramount, it's such a money suck on the overall company, which is not doing well, that they just can't afford to continue to put money into this service. If you look at what Paramount is doing at the parent company, they just laid off another 800 people. They are drastically reducing their international footprint. If it's not tied down or glued to the floor at Paramount, it's probably for sale. And Comcast just has a stronger overall business from which to invest in this service. So even though Peacock has been kind of the perennial punching bag of streaming, I actually think it's better positioned than Paramount Plus is. Especially if they actually get some NBA rights. Yeah, exactly. If I mean, everything we've been hearing out of these talks, and my colleague John Arand at Puck just wrote about this, is that the NBA expects to do some kind of a deal with both ESPN and Amazon. And then a third package would either be Warner Discovery for the Turner Networks or NBC, or they carve out a fourth to make them both happy. And NBC seems to want this, and I think it could fuel their streaming service as well. It would be interesting because if they don't get NBA, then the Spulu joint venture of all the others would have all the NBA rights, except for Amazon, and Comcast and Paramount would have none. What was your takeaway on Buffett selling a third? Right, well, so that, so that's okay. a separate topic. So if you didn't follow it, Warren Buffett, he was the biggest non-voting shareholder of Paramount as of December 31st. We got word this past week. He sold about a third of his stake in Paramount Global. Usually that means that you also sold more because when it becomes public, the stock tanks as it did, and the value of your remaining shares goes down. So we don't know whether Buffett has sold more of his Paramount stake, but the usual strategy would be to sell more before it's public. So he may be even totally out of Paramount. We just don't know yet. And the question is why? Why did Warren Buffett, who either him or one of his underlings at Berkshire, why did they get out when they famously put over a billion dollars into this very troubled company not that long ago? My theory here is probably the most obvious. I think they just realized they made a horrible mistake and that this company and linear television was not the company to bet on, even though it's probably going to be sold. They thought they might get some windfall out of a potential sale, but there are a lot of hurdles 
For that to happen, there's potential shareholder litigation that could gum that up. There's a scenario where a bunch of people look at the assets and try to buy it, and then no deal happens, and then they really are have a, having a problem. So I just think they decided this was a big mistake and got out. Do you have a do you, do you believe any of the conspiracy theories about you know whether this is Warren Buffett doing Larry Ellison a favor by tanking the stock so Larry can buy it at a lower price? I haven't heard that conspiracy theory. That's a oh, good that's, one. I've heard that several times. I've heard conspiracy theories about Paramount and its stock performance related to how Wall Street feels about it and some scandals recently. But I guess I had heard during the course of of reporting over the past couple of months, I had heard that Warren Buffett had like sanctioned Larry Ellison and the Ellisons going after Paramount. But then I got some pushback on that, so we couldn't report it. But there's definitely a relationship between Warren and Larry. Oh, they're yes, they are. Lo- they've known each other a long time. And Larry's son, David Ellison, has been in discussions with Sherry Redstone, who controls the parent company of Paramount, to purchase the parent company and then merge. Got it. So the thinking is Warren is tanking the stock to benefit Larry. I don't I don't buy that as a favor. By the way, that would be illegal. So I don't think it's any like explicit arrangement. (laughs) But uh, I do think that it's in the realm of possibilities there. The Warren Buffett Paramount connection is one I've struggled with a little bit because Buffett is known as, you know, one of the the kind of the great capitalists, one of the great investors of our time, if, if of all time. And he invested in Paramount when everyone could see that the company was headed in the wrong direction. And I could never get a great explanation for why. Was it because... Well, then he went on CNBC and started laughing about the investment and saying streaming is not a very good business. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Was it a personal relationship with the Redstone family? Did they just make an assumption that it would end up needing to get sold and it's taken too long? Well, there was speculation that someone at Berkshire, you know, a fund manager or someone trying to make a point, did it, and then Warren had to kind of live with it or explain it publicly. And that now that person has, you know, tail between the legs, admitted that they were wrong, and Warren said, get out, you know, get out of the stock. I guess there's the, if you wanted to be conspiratorial, Byron Trott, who has been working on behalf of yep, Sherry Red to try to sell the company, who also, along with Michael Dell, invested in National Amusements, the parent, the Redstone's holding company that controls Paramount. He's like become a central player in this figure, and he has deep ties to Buffett, and he could have used Berkshire as his way into a, a role in this saga. But that also would be really conspiratorial. <laughs> oh, it's so sad how we're talking about Paramount as if it's this like corpse that's being divided up and tossed around, and everybody's using it for their own personal gain. I mean, how long can this go on? People, I've heard people say that because of all the drama, this is not the time to sell. My colleague at Puck, uh, Bill Cohen, has basically said that this is such a mess that Sherry should just sit it out and wait a year or two and see if the market improves and see if she can get more. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think this is going to get worse and worse for Paramount. I mean, look at the movie studio. If you are a star or a big producer, would you bring a project to Paramount that you could sell literally anywhere else? Why would you do that? I was talking to a producer last week and I asked them who was sort of out with a project and I asked them their first choice and their last choice. And their last choice was Paramount for the exact reason that you said. Not that the one anecdote like that stands for anything, but I do think it hurts them 
as of a buyer. Of course it does. In Nobody, I mean, and, and it's it leads to institutional stagnation. I mean, not just outside producers, people internally at the company. You just kind of stop working as hard when you know you're going to be sold or when the company's going down the tubes. Like, that's not great. I mean, obviously, Paramount had a big hit this past weekend with the Bob Marley movie, and they've had hits here and there. But, like, that's not great going forward when you're in the market trying to do projects with people and they know that in a year or two, this company will probably have a different ownership, probably have different leadership, probably have a different mandate and direction. Like, why would you tie your project to that? You know, when there's this much noise around potential deals, it, you almost are trained to assume that it won't happen because if you really want something to happen, you keep it quiet. Yeah, unless you're Byron Allen. Yes. But I don't, I, I sort of share your feeling that I don't know that waiting a year or two, the best hope for that would be that the streaming service is going to be losing less money and that the street sentiment around media more broadly improves because let's say Netflix's growth continues and so people believe that streaming has potential. Bob Iger sort of succeeds to some extent on his turnaround plan and so it lifts everyone. Because otherwise, the secular trends are not in their favor. The TV advertising market doesn't seem like it's getting any better anytime soon, if ever. And the streaming business is going to get better, but it's still unprofitable. And if you're not expanding aggressively internationally, you're going to sort of cap out on growth. And so then, as you and I have both written, you're sort of competing to have people spend more time with your service. And Paramount Plus is basically in last place on that front right now. Which brings us back full circle to the sports thing. You do the one thing you can do, which is leverage your best asset, which is NFL rights. And you try to do some kind of Hail Mary, team up, growth bomb, something that can potentially Did you bring... use the phrase growth bomb? Yeah, that was from Succession. I think, uh, <laughs> I think Kendall said that at one point. Okay. But, you know, something like that, that can change the narrative, at least, on your service. And that's the one thing that Paramount Global has that any media company would kill for, which is NFL rights. Yeah, and they still have some college football. Oh, okay. But they don't have the championship. I mean, ESPN is now, what is it, $8 billion? They don't have the championship, but they have some big... T the big thing that they, they have... They do. They have SEC. No, they no, they lost the SEC to ESPN. Oh, they, they did? Yeah. Oh, that's a big could, deal. I think it was partially like when they did... They knew they had their NFL deal. I forget the exact timing. But in oh. keeping the NFL, they basically didn't pay for SEC. ESPN took it. They did end up going in on Big Ten, but they share that with both Fox and, C and NBC. Hmm. And obviously, they have the March Madness. I mean, CBS's best sports properties are the NFL, at number one, then probably college football. Well, then March Madness, I'd say, or yeah, college football, golf. and then golf. Yeah. They, have the they could get the pack 2 rights. <laughs> they could get the pack 2 <laughs> Sorry, I touched a nerve there. They, they have the Mountain West, which is uh, basically right. the new Pac-12. All right. So my point is, you got to do something. And the only thing that seems to matter is these high-profile sports rights. That is what's going on here. That's why they are trying to bundle up or do some kind of a deal that will potentially boost the subscriber numbers, the engagement, and more importantly, the narrative, which they absolutely need to boost because they got to get that stock price coming back up. Yeah. Company worth less than $9 billion. Kind of amazing when you consider that it was 30 when Sherry Redstone put CBS and Viacom together.
if you had to have like a top three gold medal, silver medal, and, and bronze medal, people who are are most to blame for the current situation, Paramount. What? what oh, medals good you question. Out? So obviously, Sumner Redstone won because the way he managed, he set up this whole situation where these people were all fighting against each other for his affections. And they were managing the stock price, not looking to the future. And he got himself in these romantic entanglements that threatened the company. So Sumner, first to blame. Second, Philippe Doman, one of the all-time shadiest CEOs in media history. And that is saying something, considering, <laughs> I mean, this. listen, there used to be a hairdresser that ran Sony Pictures. So that is saying something. He 100% managed for his own personal growth and his bonus and let the company just go to shit. Third, I would, I, I'm probably going to say Brad Gray, who ran the movie studio for many years and was also of the, like, what's in it for me type executive, where he would move movies around to pad his bonus. He was uh, kind of a shark and would focus on the personalities and how, would he, how he could fuck over certain people in his company and war with New York and make sure that LA was taken care of. So I think Brad Gray is number three. We're not blaming anyone from CBS, and we're not blaming any board members. Okay, fine. I mean, I'm not, is, I'm not C- saying what's right or wrong. The first two are sort of unimpeachable. They're obvious, but the, the CBS third one... did okay up until recently. Like, even, you know, Les Moonves obviously had his own issues uh, well chronicled, but that part of the company was doing okay. I'd have to think if there's a particular board member you could blame just because uh, there was a point in time at which we can blame Sumner, but it was clear that Sumner was not of the soundest mind and someone different could sort of influence him on any given day, Mm -hmm. whether that was the girlfriends, whether that was Philippe Dumas, whether that was board members, whether that was ultimately his daughter. I'm just bummed I didn't get in there. He could have left the company to me. I could have been his, you know, his found son. I would have gone clubbing with him. I would have like taken him, driven him around town, introduced him to people. You do love steak and sex. <laughs> so this fits into your... <laughs> he, yeah, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't tolerate him being rude to restaurant people though. That was his thing. He would scream and throw food at people. Couldn't deal with that. So, all right, Lucas, thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited that John Oliver is back? Yeah, I love last week tonight. I watched the premiere episode last night. So you watched on Max. You did not watch on YouTube the next morning. Correct. Although often (laughs) I watch on YouTube. I would say 90% of the time I watch on YouTube. Well, that was a trick question because his main segment was not on YouTube after the show because HBO announced that they are delaying the YouTube versions of the John Oliver main segment from Mondays until Thursdays. And they're doing this in an effort to get more people to watch him on Max. Do you think that's going to work? No, I do not. And that is my prediction today. I do not think that this is going to meaningfully juice the Max subscriber numbers at all. I think it's a different audience and people... It's like what happened with Smartless. Remember when Smartless, the podcast, they did a deal with Amazon. If you subscribe to Amazon, you got the episodes a week or two before everyone else. And people just waited. They just waited until the Smartless episodes dropped on all the other platforms. And then lo and behold, they, you know, now that deal's over. They're moving on to somewhere else. It's free versus paid. You have to pay for a max subscription. 
Many people watch John Oliver on Max. I do every Sunday night. And many people like to watch him on YouTube. Uh, he put out a statement that I thought was kind of a dick move. He wrote, HBO has decided they're going to wait until Thursday to post them to YouTube from now on. I hope they change their mind. But until then, you can see our piece, yada, yada, yada. I mean, come on, John Oliver. But don't you think he's just saying that to maintain his image? And even HBO is probably okay with him saying that because Maybe. they know that he needs to keep up that kind of like, you know, ethos. Yeah, this is the guy who put, you know, the public domain Mickey Mouse on his billboard. He's very anti-establishment and, you know, wants everyone to know that. But John Oliver is also the highest paid person in late night TV. So, you know what? If HBO wanted to pull his show completely off YouTube, that is their right. They are the ones monetizing this show. And, like, just be a company, man. Just say, like, this is what we're doing. Oh, see, I think this is smart because to, it'll make people who are fans of John Oliver continue to be fans of John Oliver. And he can promote his anti-establishment, like, rhetoric stuff. And HBO is probably like, look, it actually helps us for him to do this. Because if he went the other way and was like, I support this, he's making everybody mad. Well, do what Bill Maher did. And Bill Maher, you know, HBO delayed his YouTube show from the night, Friday nights till the next morning in order to air it on CNN. Bill Maher's just like, whatever, they can do whatever they want. It's their show. They monetize it. It feels a little hollow to me. Like, he's just doing this to, to be that guy. Like, I don't know. If, if, he, if he really cared about this, he's free to give back some of the money <laughs> that they pay him. Anecdotally, I think this is going to just hurt viewership across the board because it's not going to make young people sign up for Max if they weren't no. already to watch this four days earlier. And also, now if this comes out four days later on YouTube, less people are going to watch that because it's just going to be less relevant. I don't know. I mean, the whole thing about John Oliver's main segments is they're sort of divorced from the news cycle. It's not like he is commenting in his 15-minute segments about something that happened that weekend. That's fine. I just don't think it's going to help anything. It's either going to stay the same or go down. Yeah, I mean, and it'll be aggregated. Like this morning, his whole thing on Sunday night about how he offered Clarence Thomas a million dollars to resign from the Supreme Court, that's being aggregated everywhere. And you can't watch the full segment on YouTube. You have to wait until Thursday. And then by Thursday, there's a million other things have happened. Maybe, maybe. But I do think that when it pops up in your YouTube channel, if you're subscribed to him, you're still going to watch it if you like John Oliver. It's like you just have to wait a couple days. I don't know. I'd rather lean into YouTube than try to move away from it. But as Kimball said on our live show, you just don't make as much money on YouTube. And they feel that they are cannibalizing their subscription audience. So I don't know that that's true. I think it's, like I said, very different. But uh, they're going to try. And if it doesn't work, we'll probably see him back on Mondays in a year yeah. or two. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest. Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and I want to thank you. We will see you one more time this week. 